Forrest made you captain. I suppose congratulations are in order, even if they are belated. I guess these parasites weren't so easy to remove after all. Flux discovered that the organisms are from a domain outside normal space-time. They exist in a state of interspatial flux. None of his treatments had any effect on them. What about the mission? Transfer complete. Hello and welcome to Subspace Transmissions, the podcast where two Trek fans step into the arena and tackle the best, worst, weirdest, wildest, and everything in between that Star Trek has to offer. I'm Cam Smith, and joining me on the bridge. This is Tyler Orton taking off my Saval wig and putting it on Archer to make him look old. <laughs> Isn't that what happens when you age? You just develop hair like that? <laughs> yeah, you go Vulcan. That's what the kids That's calling right. it nowadays. My dad is sporting that look every day now. We love it. <laughs> And we're here this week to talk about one of the all-time great Star Trek episodes, Enterprise's Twilight. Does this episode have it all? I think it, the answer is no, Cam. It has nothing. Let's uh, let, let's call it a day. Um, no, okay. Honestly. On that note, our assignment <laughs> is complete. <laughs> no, honestly, th th this actually uh, amazed me rewatching it again. Like, obviously, I watched it uh, during my latest Enterprise rewatch, but that was a couple years ago. And it's kind of all part of the Zindi arc. And my memories going into this was that, oh, it's like kind of a, a sweet story about Archer and T'Pol. Um, this is an action-packed thrill ride that establishes stakes, both emotional as well as just like uh, existential in terms of our characters, uh, the journey of the show. Uh, I, I, I'm... Uh, absolutely amazed about like how well that they have a handle on the uh, the show don't tell rule throughout all of this. Uh, I found this more than just like a uh, kind of a, a repressed love story from or maybe really really like story from the point of view of to Paul. Um, I it, it just it felt like a, kind of a uh, uh, a way that if you ever wanted to do like an enterprise feature film you do something in the vein of this, you know, in terms of that real perfect mix of uh, great action um, and emotional stakes. I'm still amazed by the, the VFX work that we we're getting, you know, 20 years ago. And I feel kind of annoyed. It, like a lot of the new Star Trek stuff doesn't feel as if we've kind of iterated upon what we we're getting 20 years ago at the pace at which you would expect based on what we we're seeing like way back when. But uh, what, what are your thoughts? Well, this is like, one of my all-time favorite episodes. Uh, it's probably my favorite episode of Enterprise. And yeah, like, this is a great character-centric story for T'Pol. Uh, but what I like about it is Star Trek is really good at, as, at its uh, high-concept episodes. You know, you think of, like, Conundrum, for example. Um, but this one, I think, it tells a much more intimate character study than most high-concept Star Trek episodes does. And it does it in a way where... It's a really fun concept, and I have to question whether this kind of came out of Memento being so popular and sort of this cult hit uh, in the early 2000s, because uh, it does have some similarities there going on. But also the way it takes that high concept story and like uses it to have character-driven stuff, but also like 
the fun of discovery along the way and checking in with the Enterprise a few years down the road with this alternate timeline and seeing, you know, Trip as the captain and Reed as the captain of the Intrepid and Hoshi apparently very happy to not be having her own ship. Uh, that was curious. But yeah, like there's just a consistent sense of fun, even though some of the material could be looked at as kind of heavy. Yeah, um, it, it, it's... I, I keep going back to how they... Uh, like I, I know what you're saying. Like like this one moves at a clip, and there's emotional resonance in here, and it, it's telling the kind of story that you don't usually get with T'Pol either. And this is around uh, when I was coming around on T'Pol as a character. You know, those first two seasons, uh, not not the best showcase for her, but I think maybe this episode kind of solidified her uh, for me. Like I didn't we decide like um eventually that like uh T'Pol was our favorite character did did we not both agree on that uh with regards to the enterprise folks yeah i mean she's always been my favorite enterprise i i don't remember if we had that we must have had that debate along the way and i think we agreed she was like at least i don't know if we said the best or our favorite but like maybe the richest character on the show like i think like trip was always kind of a fan favorite you know mm -hmm. but i think you know at, at least for my journey with T'Pol, it wasn't like it was uh we were watching broken bow and I was like, oh, that is instantly my favorite Star Trek character from Enterprise. Like, it, uh, it it took a while for me to, like, warm up to the character. But they kept giving her, like, real, like, juicy material like this, you know. But, um, I don't know, just for those that maybe don't have the the uh, best recollections of this one, this is a story about, uh, you know, uh, they're in the midst of the Zindi war arc. And uh, Archer is hit by kind of a temporal anomaly. And that causes these kind of uh parasites that don't like live in a different kind of uh space-time sort of plane uh they keep messing with his <laughs> very star trekky very star trekky but essentially like he can't remember stuff for that very long so there's kind of a present a uh near present uh a near future and a future you know kind of four different timelines being told and he's waking up in all of them and he's like kind of like confused in all of these situations and, and there was like a some pretty like great moments you know where like to paul at one point said you know that um i i never did express my gratitude for you um you know saving me from that kind of anomaly that has afflicted you mm -hmm. and archer is like well maybe there wasn't a point in expressing gratitude because i'll just forget about it in a few hours anyways and it's just like, oof, you know, it, it's a devastating way to kind of lose agency. Like, think about, like, 51st States, you know, the uh, Adam Sandler, yeah. um, uh, Drew Barrymore movie, where it's just, you, you can only remember a day at a time, and uh, life changes around you. And Archer witnesses that as, you know, T'Pol is now captain, uh, then, then Tucker is captain, and then um, Reed's about to become captain, you know, like, and... There's also great stuff going on where to Paul said, I, now I'm sure you're wondering if this is all part of some big deception. And, you know, obviously Archer shared something uh, very, very uh, close to him uh, with to Paul to ensure that uh, she could share that with him. And, and, and he could confirm that this is not some sort of holographic sort of masquerade going on or anything like that you know so i i don't know the thing that i wanted to ask you though like okay so this is taking place about one third of the way through the uh season three zindi arc mm -hmm. um you watch the zindi succeed at destroying earth how does that affect your viewing experience knowing that well they're gonna have to like 
figure this out like th- th- like we're gonna have to reset things like going and did like did that affect the way you viewed it or did, did it still have tension for you going in i, I mean the the episode worked for me, regardless of knowing that they're going to have to kind of hit the reset button. And, and the reset button is something that I complained about with Voyager quite a bit, though. I mean, yeah, you know that the Zindi aren't going to be victorious by the end of the episode. But I, I think, like, the thing is, this one really does come down to very good storytelling and filmmaking. You know, you have Robert Duncan McNeil directed this episode and Michael uh, Mike Sussman um, wrote it. And... There's something about just like the setting up of the stakes, but it's so character driven because ultimately I don't know that I care that much about whether the Zindi are going to wipe out humanity over the course of this episode. I care about what it means to Archer and to Paul specifically. So when we get to the end and each person's being killed off, it's more about like Archer's final moments that I'm invested in. And yes, I want to see him succeed and get back to the proper timeline. And so even though it's pretty obvious that's going to be the outcome, you know, when you sit down to watch the episode. It kind of doesn't matter because the story is so well told. I'm still on the edge of my seat. One of the other things that this does, it also ramps up the stakes in the broader Zindi arc, you know, and that we find out that um, it wasn't enough just to destroy Earth. The, the Zindi hunted down uh, other outposts and colonies that uh, humans ended up on, you know, whether it was like Mars or Alpha Centauri. Um, I did like the shout out to Wrath of Khan where... Uh, humans, the the remaining 6,000 uh, of them ended up on Alpha Seti 5, which, um, yeah, kind of a cruel joke if, uh, maybe in a hundred years, um, Alpha Seti 6 gets blown up and, uh, they're gonna, that colony's gonna turn into, like, a pretty crappy place to be, but, um... That was, like, a dark joke that, if you listen to the commentary, I think it's Mike Sussman says that he put that in on purpose just so that humanity would be just that extra little bit screwed by the end. Yeah, yeah, pretty brutal there. But uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know. There's just like, but but I, I think the problem you and I have had uh, with some of the uh, uh, new Star Trek series is um, like establishing <laughs> just one this... problem. Sorry, <laughs> just one problem. <laughs> oh, okay, no, but like establishing the stakes, and yeah. this episode established the stakes in a contained 44 minutes, and it also helped solidify the stakes for the broader arc going on across the season and i think that's what you want to do in this kind of like serialized storytelling that uh, i i i really like season three and like how they're balancing like serialized storytelling with these episodes that kids stand on their own oh yeah i think this show is an actual uh, actual phenomenon when it comes especially in comparison to the later star trek at balancing an ongoing arc with individual stories i mean you can look at one like lone star from season three and kind of just snicker at it but it stands nicely outside of the arc that's going on while still feeling like a part of that season so like i give even the episodes that don't work as much this season that are standalone like i give them credit because they actually feel like they belong to season three and that's something that like you know a a discovery show hasn't been able to do which is have these kind of standalone episodes that are that feel like they matter, even if they do stand outside the general narrative. And also, like, one of the things I think that this season does really well, and this episode does phenomenally well, is it's about the Zindi arc, ultimately, you know, the Zindi succeeding, and what it means to our characters. Like, we see the impact because of this, you know, the conceit of the episode, the impact it has on Archer and to Paul and all the other characters. We see that Trip is... uh pretty severe dude when we meet up with him later down the road also whereas when i look at something like the burn in star trek discovery 
What did that mean to the characters? It didn't mean anything other than people walking around saying, oh, we don't have Starfleet or the Federation anymore. That's too bad. But it didn't emotionally take you on that journey, whereas this story does. Yeah. Um, although I remember uh, the the tavern guy was like, the burn was the best thing that ever happened to me. That's true. <laughs> That's true. And remember the season opened with that guy who had like the rolled up flag in like the space station? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we were like, wow, like that was a kind of powerful little character moment. I'm sure that guy's going to mean something later down the road. And uh, nope, <laughs> no, he didn't. He uh, he popped up in the season finale and said, hello. And we've <laughs> never seen him since then. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. But uh, I don't know. And look, there are some uh, like maybe a few critiques of this one. I, I, I think you lose a lot of punch with, with the death of Mayweather. If Mayweather doesn't even have like a single moment or even a single mm -hmm. line in this episode, all we see is that he's dead on the floor. Yeah. And it's like, oh, like they could have they could have done something with him, you know, and that like I think there could have been also people that didn't even realize that Mayweather died in that episode. You know, um, that maybe they blinked and uh, and just based on how little screen time uh, he gets any given episode anyways, like they not it could have just gone over his head that he died very suddenly. Also, like, isn't Mayweather at an all-time low in season three for screen time? I feel like he is. I'm sure somebody's clocked uh, his minutes of screen time across the entire series. Uh, the reason I'm confident about that is because it would not take them very long to do so. No, because I think of, like, season one and two, I think he has an episode in each uh, season and then more screen time. And then in season four, he has, uh, in the... Demons Terra Prime two-parter. He has like the love interest. It's like a reporter, but also Starfleet intelligence. And like he actually gets screen time in that two-parter as well as some stuff to do in season four. I think season three, he's at the helm a lot, you know, given the old I.I. and, you know, dodging Zindi fire. But I think it's actually a very dire season for him. And also I think less for, um, I think maybe less for Hoshi as well. Well, Hoshi, uh, she had that one standalone episode that creepy guy uh yeah with the psychic powers or exile yeah um yeah mayweather didn't get a single uh standalone episode throughout this it was just like oof oof you know i mean the actor's getting paid you know uh anthony montgomery's getting paid the same amount either way but as an actor you you want to work you want to know that uh you're being valued and all of that and it's, i don't know it was just weird because you see him in like certain showcase episodes and he's good you know like i i uh, and i just i don't know they, they just never seemed interested in developing him um you know and the thing is they set it up with uh okay he's a space boomer he's traveled the galaxy or the galaxy you know and but then they realize if he was there like as the guide for like every stop at every planet then it would take away a lot of the uh, the scariness of traveling further out from outer space than humanity has ever before. So they're like, oh, so they can't really tap into the most interesting part of his character trait at that point. It's a little bit like Neelix, actually, where they both start off as sort of people that have in information or can guide a little bit, but outweigh, outweigh their usefulness. Because I think Neelix, it's a similar thing where he obviously reaches a point where he doesn't know that span of space but it's also i'm sure the writers being like it's more ominous or dangerous if the crew has no idea where they're going versus having neelix telling them where to go and i think mayweather fell into the same problem it's just weird they kind of repeated the same thing twice yeah uh, another uh, critique of this one um DePaul's starfleet uniform 
like no matter what the 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 costume people can't help but try to make her like look uh, as cat suity as possible <laughs> and i'm just like really yeah. like you just like you can't like fit it like any other woman serving aboard the ship you know and it's just like she she even had to have the undershirt below the jumpsuit it had to be like undone like a, yeah. in kind of a v sort of shape it's just i don't know it is like some some lecherous vibes going on uh behind the scenes there i think i guess this was the prime era of like the uh maxim fhm yeah. magazine time and it's like that is something that in the future they can always go back to with Enterprise and be like, if you're going to chart the course of kind of pop culture through Star Trek, it's like, there we are, right there. That is that era specifically. And Topal, unfortunately, is the character who falls into that the most. How how much was did your uh, subscriptions cost, Cam? <laughs> Subscription, get out of here. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I, I don't know. It's just, it's just kind of, uh, and I also point out, that, so this is the first time we see her in a Starfleet uniform up until we get to Inamir Darkly, uh, the two-parter, and then they just cut off the midriff from there. It, mm-hmm. it, like her, her Starfleet uniforms get increasingly sexy. And I'm just like, yeah. I just kind of feel bad for like Blaylock just being increasingly objectified throughout this show. Like I, I do appreciate like in new Star Trek, um, they're, they're not making all the women characters like wear cat suits like all the time. I just wonder, and I have no way of knowing, I'd have to ask Jolene Blaylock this question, but if it was like when she's hired, if they're just like pointing at like seven of nine and being like, see, super popular. So we're going to like do the same thing with you. And, and you know, again, it's a different time period. So is she just like, okay, I guess it seemed to work for that seven of nine character, but yeah, um, as you said, like, it's not a thing you don't watch, you know, Star Trek Discovery or Star Trek Picard or Strange New Worlds. And it's like, well, there's the character wearing the latex outfit. <laughs> who who has been objectified most in uh, New Era Star Trek? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think I've got an answer, but I, I, I want to hear what you uh, what you're thinking. Um, oh, geez. Um, hmm. <laughs> Pike's hair has been very objectified. Um, yeah, yeah. No, no I, kidding. I think of like kind of. People they're putting in like sexy outfits and stuff like that, and I, no one is popping to mind. Who do you have? Uh, Ransom. Ransom. Yeah, they're they're taking yeah. a shirt off a lot, and you know. Sure. Um, I'd also point out that the uh, the lower decks there's there's a shower sequence, you know. Yeah. Um, everybody's naked, but it's blurred out. Uh, very strange for animation. Uh, there's the orgy. Uh, yeah, you know, Boimler. Boimler may have been the most objectified character in all of Star Trek, with like the uh, him doing like the splits or whatever. Poor Jack Quaid. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but live action? Does anyone jump out to you? Um, like like the most objectified within live action. Like uh, mm. like we got a lot of like Spock without his shirt on scenes. You know. Yeah. I'm I'm just saying what it is is like I think it's a conscious effort on the part of like the writers nowadays like to say like do we really need to do this? Um no. And isn't it weird that they were doing it so much way back when? Yeah. Yeah. You know, so like can can did 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 the sexy like cat suits really drive viewership? You know, like I think if like Tapal was wearing just like a regular looking uniform and if Seven of Nine was wearing, you know, just like a regular old like uniform, I, I, I think those characters would have stood on their own. I don't think like ratings would have suffered at all. Yeah, no, I think the thing with like the Seven, 
bodysuit was. It was a very um, <laughs> effective image to put out in the press and be like, here's our character. And I think you probably got a lot of people maybe tuning in to see that character. But at a certain point, no, it wouldn't have mattered at all. Like, I just think pe the character was so dynamic and interesting that, no, it wouldn't have mattered. And I just don't know that putting T'Pol in those outfits ever did wonders for Enterprise. I just don't know if it ever worked. Because no. I remember when they started the show, they were like, this Star Trek show is sexy. We have, you know, um, ner uh, the, the, you know, the decon gel. Yeah. We have T'Pol wearing these, you know, these outfits. We have also a lot of shirtless scenes and what all that, what all that sort of stuff. But I don't recall there ever being a point where the show's ratings exploded because people were like, I need to check out sexy Star Trek. I don't think that ever worked. No, and it was just kind of like, I remember as a viewer at the time, like, I, I it's kind of insulting that they would think that, like, I would be more interested in Star Trek if there was more sexiness in there. You know, like, the deep, the, the, the decon gel stuff was, like, a <laughs> joke right out the gate, but it was uncomfortable. Yeah. Like, those sequences were, un like, legit uncomfortable to watch, you know. More uncomfortable. Those are neuropressure. Um, hmm. That's a very good question. <laughs> I'll ultimately go with decon gel just because, uh, you know, it, it went across uh, many an episode, whereas Nero Pressure is mostly just contained to like one season, right? Yeah. And I guess with Nero Pressure, you could say it's somewhat character driven. Like you are getting some sort of insight between two characters, even if the way it's staged is yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> like softcore special. But like um, with the uh, decon gel, I, I mean, you really didn't gain anything from it. It didn't tell us anything. I'll just point out that there are no decon gel sequences featuring Admiral Forrest and Saval, you know, throughout the run of the series. <laughs> it, it was uh, always like kind of the hot people on the ship. If I were running that show, that would have happened. Yeah. Like it would have been like a knowing joke, you know, like, oh no, we were putting all the characters through decon gel scenes just for my own amusement. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, listeners, Cam's not joking. He's, uh, <laughs> he'd have been serious about that. Yeah. And I would have had a scene too, where it's a character like say Shran, who has to have decon gel, but he's the only actor who's doing it. So it's just this guy sitting by himself covered in decon gel <laughs> yeah. that we cut to multiple times. Love it, man. <laughs> um, one of the interesting things, and I don't know, this may be up for debate. You know, this is meant to be kind of a, a bit of an unrequited love story. Uh, from mm -hmm. the point of view of T'Pol. Uh, she's the one doing kind of the, the, the framing device narratively throughout this, telling Archer what's happened over the years, you know. Does it feel like like a one-sided relationship? Like, is there kind of a, a, like a kind of a weird feeling Im of imbalance where you, you clearly see how invested T'Pol is in Archer, whereas Archer's just kind of baffled and without agency throughout this entire time you know like remember like there's that moment where he suggested he work with trip and engineering to be helpful and then they said like, yeah. yeah we tried that but you felt really uncomfortable and it's just like oh yeah. like i felt bad for him in that moment mm -hmm. yeah and as for like that love story i think it's very much about to paul having stronger emotions for archer i don't know that i see it though as like you know a case of like her overstepping her bounds because she's obviously staying this sort of caretaker figure who has a sort of like intimate personal relationship but i think it's more just her unrequited sort of feelings but also not kind of knowing what to do with those feelings 
because I don't think she is overstepping her bounds. And I'm so glad there's a point in the episode where she's talking about, you mentioned it earlier, like the story that he told her where, you know, he proposed to a woman named Margaret, which jumps out at me because I'm like, oh, I guess maybe the name Margaret makes a real comeback uh, in the future. Because like I feel Gertie. like it's a name that's not as common. Yeah, Gertie. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like that's not a name that's used that much these days. But then he says, you know, like, how far has our relationship evolved? And you get this, like, very kind of ambiguous look onto Paul's face. And I think maybe in her mind, it actually has evolved to a place that, for her, is very intimate, for being a Vulcan. But we don't know exactly what she means. And originally in the script, they'd actually written that she would say, not that far. And it was actually Scott Bakula who told them to cut it. And I think his instincts there were bang on perfect. I like more ambiguity, you know, when when it comes to the storytelling. Like, leave it up to the... uh the audiences to kind of determine what that means uh you know and also leave it up to the actors uh i don't know i was listening to this really interesting like uh interview with mads mickelson um he's out promoting uh the the new danish film the promised land mm-hmm. uh if people if you want to know about danish potato pioneers uh that the uh, cam and i went and saw it a couple weeks ago um but uh he he's doing the interview with the uh the director and the director kept saying that like Mads would come up to him and like ask him to take out lines, and he's like, mm. he's like, I can do this with my eyes. I can express the intention here just with a look on my face. You know, like we don't need to necessarily beat audiences over the head with the dialogue. Which I like, I get it because like the, the first thing a writer is going to do is like write everything in out, and I think you can kind of like impart the information you're trying to get across. In, in different a uh, ways once once you get it you know uh being performed and, and another i, I remember uh renee Bergerma, um or at least i remember listening to a podcast with robert hewitt wolf who i believe was recounting a story about renee Bergerma, who would take every script and for all of his lines of dialogue he would pull out every punctuation mark you know every mm. period or comma and he would just find the rhythm of the wording from his own understanding of the character, which I, I, I thought all that is quite interesting, like kind of like the, an actor's process here. And it's good. I, I like those stories, but like, you know, uh, folks like uh, Bakula kind of saying like, hey, you know what? Uh, I bet we can do it this way and it'll work even better. Yeah. Like, I think his instincts were perfect. And Jolene Blaylock is so great in that moment where like her expression, there's it's perfect because it's filtered through like a Vulcan, almost inexpressiveness, but you can just read through her eyes like what she feels they've gone through together. And it's almost like this punishment she's put on herself as well, because Archer's always going to forget things. She's someone who's always kind of like having this sort of close caretaker, kind of intimate relationship that he will never remember. So it's almost like she's punishing herself that she'll never truly be appreciated or recognized as someone she he has a relationship with, but she feels duty bound to do it. And it's just an interesting aspect of the character that... I mean, Enterprise, I really feel like by the end of the show, it cares the most about the journey of T'Pol of any character. Mm-hmm. And it's the journey that she goes through that I just find the most, like, emotionally moving. Just It's kind of a bummer in that, like, T'Pol could show up on Strange New Worlds, like the timelines mm-hmm. work out. But you know that Jolene Blaylock has zero interest in ever returning to the Star Trek universe, you know? But uh, whereas all the other actors, uh, everyone's saying yes to everything <laughs> except for her, you know, uh, who Malcolm Reed is down. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> that goatee that he was wearing in, in the future stuff. It, it was so bad, man. 
It was so bad. Yeah. <laughs> what would you rather have? That goatee or the um Jonathan Archer wig? Uh ooh. Okay, I I would have to go with the goatee cuz it was it, it wasn't just the bad wig, it was also like they gave him gray eyebrows too. And mm-hmm. they were like, this is 12 years in the future. And it's like all his eyebrows are like uh, gray. <laughs> it's just kind of like, remember the first Thor movie and they dyed Chris Hemsworth, uh, his eyebrows, they dyed them uh, like platinum blonde as well. Yeah. And it just, it looked really goofy. Yeah. And Scott Bakula aged very well over those 12 years after Enterprise. No like kidding. he did not have like gray eyebrows and this uh, mop wig. <laughs> <laughs> he looked like a monkey. Like from the monkeys, the uh, the band, yeah. That's a perfect uh, callback. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, some other funny stuff in this one. Uh, you know the the uh, uh, the Zindi reptilians. Uh, you know, kind of invading the ship. Uh, a cu- couple times they really like uh made the Zindi scary here, and I think that's also mm-hmm. very effective at like raising the stakes. Uh, the Zindi reptilians, like they look pretty good. You know, like, yeah. um, uh, probably the best, like, combination of, like, costuming and makeup uh, for an antagonist uh, up until that point, since I would say, like, uh, Voyager's Herogen, you know? Um, so I think they were very effective at, at establishing the stakes there. Um, I love that moment where, uh, you know, they uh, crash Archer's quarters and he takes a statue of Zephram Cochran and, like, impales <laughs> it in the guy's <laughs> neck. I'm like, wow, there you go. Uh, yeah, Z. like they make Archer seem kind of uh, fragile through the episode, but then cut to him just like smashing that through the guy's chest. It's like, wow. I mean, I wonder how much of that was Bakula being like, look, give me my moment. Yeah. I got to have at least one badass moment here. Speaking of badass moments, um, so the Zindi ship is docked with uh, the Enterprise. And so T'Pol takes the helm and smashes that one ship that's docked to them into another Zindi ship. And I was just like, oh, cool. And then they show that it had damage. You know, it wasn't like the Enterprise just got away scot-free. And, you know, I was just like, okay, yes. Like, um, this is how you kind of establish that there are uh, consequences for decisions that might get you out of, uh, you know, kind of a tough spot. It's interesting with like VFX at the time, this, this is the sort of stuff that you would not have been able to get away with in like kind of next generation. And so I like that they were able to play around with that and um, ha- make it kind of also like a story point that would have consequences in terms of like uh, even just how fast they, at warp that they could go for much of that part of the timeline too. Well, this drives a lot of the conflict, too, in this part of the episode between Trip and T'Pol, with her being in charge and him saying, I believe, after this happens, it's like uh, one wrong turn after another. <laughs> it's like, oh, boy. <laughs> oh, boy. Real backseat driver, that Trip. Well, you know, I he was still kind of, uh, he was going through a lot uh, during season three. Oh, yeah. And like when you even cut back to him in the future and he's a captain, he still has that edge to him. That you can tell that this man has never kind of resolved his issues the way he has when you go to, say, season four of Enterprise. And there's a scene where he's, like, screaming at that guy. They, you know, pull over the information broker or whatever. And it's like, wow, like, you know, I like that they presented an alt future that was grim without being in your face grim the way Star Trek does a lot of time. Like, this was not the um, alternate future of, say, Picard season two. (laughs) <laughs> where it's like fascist planet. Yeah. It's like things still moved forward, you know, the 6000 human beings have found a home, but people are still not 
not in the best places they could be. Like it, it, it feels like a place you want to see fixed by the end, but it also feels like a thing could that could actually happen as opposed to these kind of like fantastic mirror universe type worlds. Oh, I, I wonder if Anthony Montgomery thinks it was dystopian. Did did anyone even acknowledge Mayweather's death at, at any point? No, no. And I, I felt bad for him. I also felt bad for Hoshi, though, where it's like, <laughs> where Trip's like, I've got a ship. And Reed's like, and I've got a ship. And Archer's like, does everyone have a ship? And she's like, not me, Captain. <laughs> it's like, okay. I have a new haircut. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, well, hold on now. Hold on. Now. I don't know that the women fare the best in this episode in some ways because Hoshi has that kind of bizarre moment. But then also at the end where it's like, well, to Paul, you'd be a hell of a nurse. <laughs> yeah, really. Um, but, uh, you know, this episode also got me thinking about like the uh, the Archer to Paul dynamic versus the Paul to Paul trip dynamic. And, and like, mm. let, let's fast forward like uh, this. Th- this to me is kind of like a, a love story here. You know, but let's fast forward all the way to the end of season four, and it seems as if there's much more like um, romantic sparks going on between Trip and T'Pol. Mm-hmm. Whereas when we get to the final episode of uh, Enterprise, it's very much Archer and T'Pol. Like it, it's not romantic, but it's very and it's not like brother sister. It's something kind of deeper, like something very like you can tell they're. Um, I guess you can say that they they've spent ten years on missions with each other and just developed like a very very close familial bond and it's just interesting like how you can have that like these showcase these very different relationships in an episode like Twilight versus an episode uh like these are uh these are the voyages uh, not a great episode but you know I've talked in the past about how great that moment is where uh, you know to Paul and Archer embrace and acknowledge how much they mean to each other here and so i don't know but it's like i i don't know if like i like i buy more romantic uh sort of future for like trip into paul than i do for archer into paul despite how well this episode worked for me yeah and like i wonder if the writers were not sure which direction they wanted to go whether they were like kind of toying with an Archer to Paul romance for a while because you remember in that season one episode one night in sickbay where Archer's like having weird sex dreams about to Paul throughout the entire episode you say weird um, I mean <laughs> I think it's perfectly natural sex dreams Cameron <laughs> but then you have this episode and it's like you could see they were kind of like maybe even just keeping their options open and then ultimately decide that trip was the more interesting partner for her because you have the differences in personality that are more fun to bounce off of one another and you can really generate sparks there they would not be like kind of a boring couple on screen and so that makes a lot of sense to me but i i wonder too when they were if they were like look at the triumvirate because the relationship between kirk and spock is very intimate i mean it's not just like hey they're best friends they hang out it's like there's something much closer and warmer there and it feels like they're kind of transposing that onto Archer and T'Pol. I wouldn't say, though, that um, Trip and um, T- and uh, T'Pol have the same relationship as Spock and McCoy. I'd say that one's a little different. But in terms of the uh, sure. captain and first officer, it-, it does seem like there's a closeness that just isn't really matched by any of the other shows that I can think of. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
you know, before I I, I want to jump over to kind of the the uh, latest Star Trek Discovery trailer that came out as as we got closer and closer to the final season. But uh, do do you have any, any final thoughts here on Twilight? Which uh, for me, I I, I still put uh, Enemy or Darkly as my favorite uh, two episodes of uh, Enterprise, but Twilight is a very very close one. Uh, uh, just right up at the finish line for top Enterprise for me. Uh, this is obviously your favorite uh, episode, of course, but um, yeah. a- any closing thoughts? Well, here's a, a maybe it's just a question, because a lot of the time when we talk about these great episodes, for example, Darmok from TNG or some of the DS9 ones we've talked about, I feel like those are great episodes that you could show someone who hadn't seen the show that might pull them into the show. Do you think Twilight would even work in that regard, or do you have to go on the journey for this one to be as rewarding as it is? That's a very good question because Initia is going to say, "Well, this is a standalone. Maybe you just need to tell somebody, you know, a, a little bit about the Zindis, you know." But then I, I think this one resonates so much for viewers, though, is because we've been following the relationship between Archer and T'Pol for all these years. And I mean, if you're a newbie, the only dynamic that you have leading up to this is that, uh, you know, he was about to order her to go see Rosemary's baby with the crew. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, and then he tried to lift up a uh, a, a metal piece of uh, debris from like her leg, and uh, got caught in that like sort of like anomaly, you know. And, and so like, yeah, that's tough. I yeah, may, yeah, may, maybe you really do have to be kind of um, appreciative of the uh, the sixty episodes that preceded this one. Yeah, because, you know, you look at T'Pol in the first couple seasons, and some people have, you know, kind of issues with the character in the first couple, but, like, there's something about seeing this kind of, like, chillier, more aloof character at the start of season one, and then getting to this episode that just informs so much more of the emotional response to the journey of the episode. So, like, yeah, I do kind of feel like this is one that really, really rewards people who've gone through the story of Enterprise I'd like to say that it would be a great one to show people, but I don't know that it would have that emotional connection for others. Would um, These Are the Voyages be easier to understand if you had never seen an episode of Enterprise before? Yeah, I think so, actually. People would be like, oh, I love TNG. <laughs> hey, it's Wrecker and Troy. <laughs> and the voice of Data. <laughs> they may not make the Pegasus connection, but other than that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um Okay, uh, Cameron, a uh, new trailer has just dropped for uh, Star Trek Discovery. Um, reminds me that we are getting very close. April is when we're going to get yeah. the uh, premiere of the uh, season uh, five, uh, uh, fifth season premiere, I should say, and final season. Um, yeah, I for me, you know, I just I, like the the trailer didn't necessarily wow me. Um, <laughs> I mean, it, it like it looks like some good visual effects coming up. I, I mean, they're they're selling the whole "we're on a hunt for the most important artifact in the entire universe," and and in my head, I'm like, yeah, I know everything is like the fate of the universe rests on the crew of uh, Discovery, and I'm just kind of like, I don't, I don't know, like I, I'm I'm putting you on the spot. Not sure if you caught this one um, the last few days, but uh, a, a, anything jump out to you? Um, one thing that I always say is like when I see a trailer like this, which is basically a two minute kind of action-heavy trailer, to me that means nothing because ultimately this is a 10-hour story. So, like, there may be impressive action, but it's... So far, Discovery seasons have not been that propulsive. 
So I'm not going to buy that it's this propulsive two-minute thrill ride because that's not the way action would be spaced out in a 10-hour you know, journey through the season. So it's like, yeah, some of the shots look nice, but I don't know. Like, I could watch the season and be like, okay, well, that was slow. Um, so that's always kind of a concern because I think of that, especially with like um, one of the Picard seasons. I can't remember if it was maybe one or two, but like the trailer was quite fast-paced. And then you get to the season and you're like, nope, this is a slow ride. And so... This was more just like, okay, it was more of a tone piece for me where I'm like, yeah, they definitely have shifted things up. They want this to seem a little more irreverent. They want this to seem, um, you know, kind of like a, ooh, we've got a big bad you can hiss at and the Discovery crew has to overcome him. While they're also mixing in moments of kind of like sentimental um reflections on, you know, I think um, Saru says something about, oh, my time on Discovery, kind of tying into the end of the show kind of vibe. That's cool. If it has sort of a, you know, more energetic adventure vibe, that's cool. And if it has those reflections on what the show all means, I would welcome them because I'm not sure what the show all means at this point. <laughs> but I, I just don't know that I have that much faith in that 10 episode block versus something that was maybe a two hour movie. I know. I know. It, it's just, it, again, uh, I'm going to hold out hope that uh, instead of stretching out, you know, like four episodes of story across like 15 episodes, like we've seen in other seasons, like maybe they found like actually 10 episodes of story to fit in within 10 episodes. I think, I think they'll benefit from a shortened season just in terms of like, they'll be less inclined towards, you know, stretching things out as they've done so much. Uh, I did laugh because you and I are talking last week about, uh, uh, Star Trek Family Values, and uh, this one had uh, Berman uh, or Burnham screaming about how we're a family. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, and uh, I rank the Discovery crew ho- quite high when it turned. Uh, yeah, but I also I, I couch it as like, um, like unhealthy codependency on uh, yeah the the crew here. I I really don't know what they're gonna do with like with uh, Saru. Like I just like I the the best thing is that like they. they pop in at Starfleet uh, headquarters nonstop because uh, the spore drive allows that. I, I It makes more sense to me that like Saru's having a bump in time at Starfleet headquarters versus being seconded to Discovery once again. Yeah. Well, I mean, how much do you think his relationship with the, um, the Navarre um, president is going to factor into it? I think it'll be, uh, I, I think that's going to be kind of the spine of his story, yeah. his journey throughout the season. So I even wonder if he's around on Discovery for a chunk of the season. Like he may be, as you know, you said maybe like back at the Starfleet headquarters or something. Um, well, it, but in that situation, like like I think it just it'd still be an opportunity for him to pop up in every episode. Um, mm. you know, versus Tilly last season. Yep, she goes to Starfleet Academy or Starfleet headquarters and disappears for uh, about like seventy five percent of the the season. Yes, yes, and then shows up like a, like a Gatling gun or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> My concern also is like Discovery early on was really marketing their villain this season, and so far villains have not been Discovery's strong suit. <laughs> um, you know, season one's okay, but season two, uh, Leland was not one of the all-time great big bads, and then season three, you've got Osira, who is really weak. And we like Tarka as a character, but 
over the course of the season, he kind of fell apart as a compelling villain. So the show does not have a good track record. Well, like, and it, I, I wouldn't call him a villain. I, I would call him more like um, he had different goals than sure. the rest of the crew. Like he was a uh, a conflicted character. And yeah, but I, I like I know what you're saying. Like I, I don't think Discovery has a good track record when it comes to antagonistic forces. No, I mean hopefully this guy's better than Cowboy. But yep. uh... <laughs> yeah, Tavern Man, you know, where the the burn was the best thing that ever happened to him. Yeah, I I, so that's like that's a little. It's not really a concern because if they deliver more of the same, then I'll be like, yeah, okay, more or less what I expected. But yeah. uh, I'd like the show to go out strong, even though it's frustrated me for the last couple seasons. I don't want this show to end with a sad whimper. It's more like just, it's just a happier thing to see if the show pulls off like a really fun final season where we go, oh, damn, they, they got it together. It's too bad that they didn't have it all along. But you know what? Like, I did enjoy that season. I, I'm going in. I say this every year and I keep uh, getting disappointed. I'm going in with an open mind. I'm not going to prejudge it, you know, um, but, uh, you know, <laughs> just... The show is just like very strange, you know, um, yeah. just in how it's written. And uh, it definitely has its fans, but um, I just don't find it the most compelling in terms of storytelling. No, I'm really debating in my head which was a stranger show, this or Picard. I think Picard is a stranger one. Yeah, like it just. <sighs> I, I will never understand how season two of Picard made it to screen. Yeah. Like, were they that desperate with regards to the scheduling in the COVID era that they had to, like, film without, like, scripts ready? Like, were, were there scheduling issues that would have come up with the actors that, like... But then the thing is, they, they got rid of so many actors every single season. So it's just like, all you need is Patrick Stewart. Like, the deal was they are going to film seasons two and three back to back. And... I don't know. I just, I, I can't make sense of how we ended up with season two in a very nonsensical story. Had they started shooting season two when the pandemic hit? Uh, no. So, okay. yeah, they, they, from what I understand, they had a bunch of scripts ready for season two. And then the pandemic happens and then things loosen up. And I remember at the time, like, um, the film industry in Vancouver got going before the one did in California. Mm. And, but Picard was always going to film in California. And so, uh, anyways, they, they, they had to kind of scrap all these scripts because they wanted to be in kind of open air on location uh, scenes. So that would reduce COVID risks. And as opposed to being in like this contained starship, you know, so yeah. I don't know what the plan was for the original story was for season two. I have to imagine it was better than what like this L.A. thing with Renee Picard. Maybe one day they'll make it into a graphic novel. <laughs> we'll see the alternate <laughs> season two Picard. <laughs> I, I would buy that graphic novel. I would too, actually. I would be just so fascinated to see what this journey was supposed to be. Because yeah. I have to imagine they had more focused, ambitious ideas. You'd hope. And if they, I, I hope if and this is if the season two we got was actually superior to the one they originally had in mind, I would still buy that graphic novel. 
they were going to do way more with ice originally way 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 more <laughs> it was going to be from ice's perspective yeah exactly you know? <laughs> hey you immigrants <laughs> <laughs> so i guess yeah we have what how long two months no like just over a month until we'll start on discovery right yeah and uh wow yeah we'll, we'll be here for the premiere we'll definitely be there for the finale uh what comes in between that's really up to the quality of programming we get uh uh but I, you and i are ready to do it week to week um you know but it, it, we have to be able to comment on what's going on like we like the reason we stopped doing weekly reviews in season four is like we just we didn't have anything to say about this show i think we had more to say about some of the short treks <laughs> Than yeah. we had about some of those discovery episodes. We had more to say about the very short treks. <laughs> you sad but true. Okay, so on that note, our assignment is complete. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, we want to hear from you. Jump on over to the Facebook page at facebook.com slash subspace pod and let us know your thoughts on Twilight. Tyler, what are we doing next week? We'll be tackling Star Trek's false endings and returns. Uh, lots of fun examples that we'll dive into when it comes to um, maybe some conclusions that weren't so conclusive as we thought at the time. Ooh, I definitely have a few in mind that were, um, well, there's lots to talk about. Let's just say that. Okay. <laughs> Ooh, that's a good one. Okay. You can, of course, find us on the Twitter. I'm at Cam V as in vacationing at SETI Alpha 5 Smith. You can find me at Reportin, that's R-E-P-O-R-T-O-N, N as in Neuropressures with Decon Gel. Okay, so until next time, the arena is closed. I have a new haircut. <laughs>